Hello, and welcome to another sunny, cold, new, I guess it's newly cold, but... It's it's newly cold outside, Sunday, Brooklyn. but it's burning up in here. It's very hot so. in the studio today, yeah. We are, we're not feeling like winter right now. No, it's a bit, uh, and this is my first time, this is Jasmine, yes. by the way, this is Objection <laughs> to the Rule at Radio Free Brooklyn. Yay. Yes, uh. this is Emily, and Jasmine is running the boards today, which is so exciting, it is. It's a little. I'm like sweating for How two you reasons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. It's a lot of energy going on. Um, but yeah, this is Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn live, recorded in studio. Uh, how's your week been, Jasmine? Um, my week's been okay. I can't quite remember what I did this week, but nice. that's most weeks. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I can't complain. I'm happy for the fall. Yeah, almost uh, holiday time. So I've been mm-hmm. blasting Mariah Carey. Nice. It's oh yeah, as soon as for me, Susan's Hallow- as soon as Halloween's over, it's Christmas. It's time. time. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So Teresa is going to be joining us shortly. But um, if you're ready, Jasmine, you have actually a very appropriate um, couple. It's like a combined mashup national local story. Yeah. Uh, appropriate for Thanksgiving month, I think. Yeah, it's definitely appropriate. It's it's always evergreen, and mm-hmm. this is a story that um. Oh, okay. Did I mess something? Oh no, no, okay. no! I was just okay. <laughs> checking on the volume. Okay. Just you keep rolling, girl. You're good. All right. So this um, this week something popped up on uh, Twitter that re- gave me a reminder of how important it is to not just read the headline or maybe a tweet about something. Because I saw um, a lot of people reacting very angrily, thinking that um, the president, like the man in office now, had gotten rid of Native American Heritage Month or replaced it with a different celebration, but that's not actually the case. So just a little background. like So Native American Heritage Month has traditionally been November. Um, it started, well, the origins of it started way back at the beginning of the 1900s a man named Dr. Um, Arthur C. Parker, a Seneca Indian and director of the Museum of Arts and Science in Rochester, convinced the Boy Scouts to create a first Americans Day. I didn't find the exact year for when that happened, but about like in the early teens. Um, later on, a little bit later on, Reverend Sherman Coolidge, an Arapaho uh, Indian and president of the American Indian Association issued a proclamation in September 1915 that declared the second Saturday of each May American Indian Day. So it started out with just, you know, a single day out of the year. Um, Red Fox James, a Blackfoot Indian, rode on horseback from state to state looking for approval for a day to honor um, American Indians. And on December 14th, he presented the endorsements of 24 state governments at the White House to have in American Indian Day. Um, And in New York State, that was the first state to declare an American Indian Day in May 1916. So it was the second Saturday in May. Um, The governor declared that to be American Indian Day. Presently, several states have designated Columbus Day as Native American Day or Indigenous Peoples Day, but it's still not recognized as a national legal holiday. And coming a little bit closer to our time, in 1990, President George H.W. Bush approved a revolution to designate November National American Indian Heritage Month. So proclamations that are similar but under somewhat different names, like Native American Heritage Month, National American Indian and Alaska Native Heritage Month, 
have been issued each year by the White House since 1994. Um, recently, there's been some news outlets that have put out um, headlines that made it look like, oh, no, like the president has gotten rid of that and people were rightfully upset to think that that's what had happened. But that wasn't exactly what went down this year. So the New York Times reports that um, the president announced that November should be a time to celebrate both Native American heritage and the country's founders, um, meaning, you know, the founding fathers. And this coincides, as we know, with National Native American Heritage Month. So a lot of Native Americans feel that this new proclamation that he put out diminishes the importance of the time set aside specifically to honor them. Um, it's problematic because they say, and they're correct, that their ancestors were oppressed and killed by a lot of the soldiers and settlers at the time mm -hmm. that the country was founded. Um, and another argument, which I think is important, is that the country already regularly celebrates the founding fathers, like there's Mount Rushmore, there's federal holidays like President's Day, the 4th of July. Open your wallet if you have cash, if you have coins, you see their faces everywhere. Um, a man who was interviewed for the Times named Joshua Web Webindato, whose family is of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa Indians and the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians in Michigan, said he felt like the proclamation undercut Native American Heritage Month and stifled Indigenous voices. Um, so a little earlier, we talked about how uh, Red Fox James rode on a horse from state to state to try to drum up interest and support to celebrate indigenous people. But today, we have Jennifer and Jack London, they're two Republican donors, and they've been trying to garner support for having a Founders Month. Um, they run something called the National American History and Founders Month organization in Virginia. Uh, Jennifer London said that more than 15 states have issued similar proclamations, like meaning that November should be also National Founders Month. And she praised President Trump for doing the same on the federal level. She claims that she chose November because it encompasses the celebration of Native American heritage, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving, and the traditional school year. I'm not, school tends to start in September yeah, around here, <laughs> so I'm not really sure like where that came from. Um, but both of those proclamations were published in the Federal Register this past Tuesday. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> One of the things that caused some of the confusion is that the National Native American Heritage Month proclamation wasn't immediately posted on the White House website after it was issued, so some people were assuming that it had been changed. Um, Robert Stockdale of Knoxville, Tennessee, he's another um, in indigenous man, said the focus in November should be on honoring Native American heritage. And according to him, he said a better fit to celebrate the founders and the signing of the Declaration of Independence would be July. So, yeah, so that's, it's hmm. not so much that, this reminds me of, like, how someone or one of your siblings can get right up in your face and be like, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not <laughs> touching you, like, don't hit me, I'm not touching you, but, it, yeah, they're clearly right. not respecting a boundary or they're trying to make a point that they don't really need to respect. Yeah. You, so that's and it's a little bit of like um making you feel like denying your discomfort with the situation too. Yeah, it's really it's interesting and it's it's why why, right? It it and I mean, you know, Trump, it feels like you always have to 
not well it's like playing to his base right it's taking away um acknowledgement of people who aren't white <laughs> yeah <laughs> you and, know and downplaying people who are already routinely like erased right. from history books mm-hmm. and like you don't see people are not aware of like who were the people that were living where they live now like yeah before. well um, and that happened i mean it, it people in recent years there's been a lot of um, noise around like stuff like Columbus Day being like, how about Indigenous Peoples Day? Because Columbus was a piece of shit, right? right, right. <laughs> Raped and pillaged, and um, it and there's a lot of talk around that. Um, there's been talk around the, how the founders, how you know Jefferson had slaves and all this stuff, and it's been you know, um, it, this feels in line with that, and in line with all the you know the f- fights of people in the South to get rid of confederate statues or really adamantly want to keep them and that sort of clashing of um people's visions of what the origin stories of this country are and what deserves to have its own space in the sun or in light you know in discussions right and i think that the point you made about um confederate statues is interesting because a lot of people don't realize that those statues were erected at a time that was long after the civil mm-hmm. war had ended and the purpose was to intimidate and yep. remind and put people in their place that these are the people we think are important we don't care about the advances that you like former slaves have made and mm-hmm. this to me seems like a similar type thing like in my opinion there is no other true purpose other than to put other people down or to try to remind them like we're the people that really matter like these are the stories we want to emphasize Mm -hmm. even though they're emphasized all day every day all around us yeah yeah those statues like going back to that were i think it was like during the uh, 1920s i want to say like 20s through 40s jim crow era like very much specifically right yeah and even this person um jennifer and jack not jack london oof that's the guy who oh no it is jack london oh so he's back hello the guy who wrote the call of the wild so this right it's like the national american history and founders month organization you know i don't know much about them but you know you have organizations like the sons and daughters of the confederacy Mm -hmm. like where their whole purpose is to it's behind this like narrative of Oh, history and honoring our ancestors, but it's really like a thinly veiled a- attempt to just, you know, promote what's already a dominant mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah. And and specifically, too, it's interesting that anyone could look at um, combining, trying to to honor at the same time and in the same way the founders of the United States and the Native American populations that were here before, because they were very much explicitly at odds with each other. Right. Like, like like slaughtering and being forced to move and you know not being given or allowed to live in the way they had been living before and it's it really feels like a very reductive like position to take on the whole thing yeah it's really it it really is a lot of erasure of history you know like the amount of violence not just um, with physical violence, like murdering people, raping them, but even things mm-hmm. like taking children from their homes mm-hmm. and forcing them to try to assimilate into white culture. Like yeah. that's been, you know, such an ugly thing that's been happening for generations to Native people in this country. And this just seems like a continuation of that type of erasure. So 
on the flip side, what can you do to honor indigenous people this Native American History Month? So I don't know if you know, have you ever been to the Museum of the American Indian in New York? The Smithsonian? In New York? Yeah, there's one in D.C. and there's one here. I don't think I have. It's a great museum. I feel like not not enough people know about it. It's at One Bowling Green. It's free and open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's closed on Christmas Day. Cool. And yeah, it's 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 really beautiful. Like I think more people should go. Like it's never crowded. Huh. Um so there's an exhibit that begins on November the 16th called Stretching the Canvas: 8 Decades of Native Painting. So that's um native art um on display there and there's also a talk called Rethinking Thanksgiving. Um it's a presentation given by a man named Perry Ground on Thursday, November 21st and Friday, November 22nd from 1:30 p.m. to 3:30 p.m. and it repeats every 30 minutes. So it's a workshop and a talk that's based on primary source documents about from the first Thanksgiving mm. and it um aims to give visitors accurate information about the English settlers at Plymouth and the Wampanoag people who inhabited the area before. Um, there's also something called Farmhouse Family Day Native Storytelling at the Wyckoff Farmhouse Museum at 5816 Clarendon Road in Brooklyn, New York. That's from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. on November the 16th. Uh, and there's also, I didn't write it down in my notes, but um, at the Brooklyn Museum, if you take the two or three and get off at the, I think it's called Brooklyn Museums, the Eastern Parkway Brooklyn Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pay what you wish, and they have a whole floor that's dedicated to um, art and history of indigenous peoples throughout the Americas. So both the Bowling Green Museum and also the Brooklyn Museum, it's not just focused on um, the continental United States, but it's truly like indigenous people from the what we know now as Latin America up through um, north, like far North America and Canada, so... I would encourage everyone to please, you know, take some time out this month, um, especially as we approach Thanksgiving. We know not everyone celebrates it as a holiday for a lot of people. It's a very solemn time. So Mm -hmm. take some time to learn more about, you know, the people that have been here since before the quote unquote beginning that a lot of people like to try to point to these days. Awesome. Thank you so much for your extensive research on that. Topic. That was awesome. Oh, no problem. <laughs> no problem. Great job. So yeah, so that was like a little, that was like a local national mashup kind of story, things you can do in New York around this national issue. Um, I'm going to do a national story now okay. because we have a, like a special little local like audio piece by Matt coming up in a little bit. So we're jumping around a little bit in the order of the show. But um, all right. So I have a story on breathalyzers. Jasmine. Okay. Okay. Have you ever breathed into one? I've as, never. As I'm looking at your Jameson whiskey shirt. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what can I say? No, I have not. I have not. My father's listening, Dad. I have never needed to do a breathalyzer. <laughs> Me either. Life. Woohoo. Not even for fun. I um, also don't drive, so. Hey, New York. There you go. Um, all right. So this past week, the New York Times published an investigation into the famous and or infamous breathalyzer test machines uh, used nationwide by police departments to detect and curb Drunk driving, pun not intended, on the curb. I was writing that and chuckled to myself, but it was not on purpose. Uh Um, People suspected of driving under the influence of alcohol are made to blow into a machine that is supposed to be able to analyze their breath and produce 
a blood alcohol level based on that for anyone who just want a refresher on how breathalyzers work. Um, every state in the nation has punishments for people who refuse to take a test when pulled over by the police. Um, and the only way to measure blood alcohol level directly is with a blood test, um, which I was which I was really interested or it was really interesting to read that. I didn't realize that um, you could like refusing to take a breathalyzer test could be a punishment when there's, you know, it's like feels like, well, I, you don't know I've broken the law. So how can you punish me for not, you know, right. it's like refusing to take a lie detector test and being like actively punished as opposed to, you know. Anyway, uh, anyway, so as it turns out, according to the New York Times uh, report, so nationwide, there are issues with the accuracy of these machines uh, that come from different companies and go by a variety of names, including really fun ones like the Intoxalyzer, oh I know, the Intoxalyzer 8000 and the Alco Sensor 4. That's an IV Roman numeral 4. Um, so some examples of how these machines are not working very well. Uh, a review of the software used in the machines in Washington state that occurred around 2015 found that the Alco test 9510, um, quote, does not adhere to even basic standards of, me- of measurement, <laughs> which is pretty damning. That's terrible. <laughs> it's really bad. Uh, in 2007, an analysis of the software in the Alco test uh, 7110 uh, machines in New Jersey was found by an expert to be littered with thousands of programming errors and in 2005 a toxicology lab in vermont found that the intoxilizer 8000 quote uh or gave inaccurate results on almost every test (laughs) which is pretty wild yeah and especially i think when people like machines like this and given names like that are meant to make you feel like the sense of sureness of the accuracy of the well, data. Well, these names sound ridiculous. <laughs> the intoxilot, that's what it's doing. It's making you look drunk when you're not. <laughs> right. No, it's crazy. Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously inaccurately high results on a breathalyzer test can have dire consequences for those who take them. And um, the report I was reading emphasized that a lot of the inaccuracies were pushed towards the higher point um also hi teresa welcome Hello, welcome hi, sorry about that all good all good um yeah so um a lot of the inconsistencies skewed towards an um making someone look more intoxicated than they were um and they can have dire consequences for people who take them punishments can be for very severe for drunk driving including loss of driving privileges uh which can affect a person's ability to work and take care of their family um, let alone if they have a, a prior offense or more than one offense, it can have really dire legal consequences. Um, so in general, being tough on drunk driving is a really good thing. Uh, the number of fatalities due to drunk driving has been cut in half since the 1980s. Oh, that's good. Yeah, really good. So I was reading it was about 20,100 uh, 20, deaths in that in that year or something like um and when they started taking those stats mm-hmm. um but as the number of miles people have driven has exponentially risen the that number has dropped to about half that okay. which is really awesome um and in the 80s of course that's when campaigns like mothers against drunk driving began and laws against about duis became much stricter um i remember like I grew up, my dad, I don't feel like my dad was always telling me how like back in like the, you know, the sixties and seventies, if you got in an accident while you were drunk, it didn't make you look more guilty. It was almost like the excuse why it was like, Oh, they were just drunk. So like, let it go. Yeah, (laughs) no. Yeah. It used to be like the whole view of it was really skewed differently. Um, yeah, but obviously an uh, inaccurate breathalyzer tests can chip away at your civil liberties, right? It's pretty messed up. Um, Yeah. It can't, like, yeah, this is one of those, uh, 
I don't like to be the devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. The devil does not need an advocate. <laughs> However, it is kind of like I'd rather be safe than sorry. Mm-hmm. So I want. I w- it would be interesting to see like just how far off the results are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like are these people coming in like technically they were right under the limit and it made them look like they were at the limit right. and so now but that's still you know alcohol is people forget alcohol is a drug like it affects people differently everyone's body is somewhat mm-hmm. different so maybe it's one drink for one person to you know their motor skills are not right and they're swerving yeah, and another person can yeah. have like three four and they're quote unquote okay so yeah um no it's really interesting and yeah what you were saying like um majority of not the majority a lot of the cases that you know are tied up in this article and with states specifically looking at this issue a lot of the cases that people were convicted on or that they pled guilty to the most damning evidence and the thing that really either made convince them that they had to plead guilty or that they lost a trial on was the breathalyzer results um and and it's also uh i mean i like basically memorized this article i'm just spouting out the new york times but um there, so there's there's the machines that the the portable machines that the police bring with them that are um, going to be less accurate because you know it's portable and of course and there's also all these issues with calibrations and you right, know there yeah. these machines are pretty need to be calibrated very accurately and it's relying on you know just like um, dispersed and like people all over the country and police stations that aren't scientists and have you know they don't have the right people doing it or people just don't really care enough or don't really think it's a big deal to make sure it's calibrated accurately. Right, yeah. Um, but even the machines that are at the police stations, the ones that are supposed to be big and sturdy and accurate, there were things like in one state they found like rats nesting in one of the machines. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like it's like, it's, it's really kind of crazy that some, and it's, it is like when you hear about like people getting convicted of DUI, all you ever hear is like that 0.08 level right, or yeah. higher. That's the number that really, is the issue at play not like oh he was swerving all across the road which does happen but isn't the go-to proof that they were when we talk about this issue which is weird because what isn't when you're pulled over because i've i've never been pulled over oh jasmine's dad i hope you're listening yeah (laughs) i mean i don't have a car so (laughs) but like you they think that you're drunk because of your the way that you're driving. Yes, is that typically why? Like I they... I think I mean people get pulled over for a number of reasons. Right. You might get pulled over for one reason, and while they're talking to you, they decide they want to breathalyze you like or if test you're you. Slurring or they think yeah. they just suspect that you've been drinking. Yeah, something. if they have some sort of suspicion, we can get more negative about it and say they just don't like you. Right, or right, right. One of the first questions they always ask you when you get pulled over because I have been okay mm. now with a DUI. <laughs> yeah, um, but is where are you going or where are you coming from right they yeah. actually ask you that to see if you know i feel like sometimes they're just trying to see what you're going to say or mm-hmm, if you can mm-hmm. um answer in an appropriate way but i guess they can make a ju- uh, a judgment call from there mm-hmm. i haven't really ever seen anyone go through a breathalyzer test. not in real life mm-hmm. yeah you only see it like on tv right yeah yeah, yeah it's or like they make you count backward like mm-hmm. do like things to see if yeah. you can like how your motor skills yeah, are or whatever yeah, yeah. like but I, there was this um, podcast called Running from Cops that mm. was very interesting. Whoa. And it was about um, cops, the TV show, and other TV shows like that and how so much of it's supposed to be reality, but a lot of that stuff is, like, drummed up for the cameras and mm. it's ruining these people's lives. 
And this made me think of one case. They interviewed a person who, it wasn't a breathalyzer, but it was supposed to be some like to test if it was drugs. It's like, what's this powder? And it was mm -hmm. pink Himalayan salt. It was Mm -hmm. Himalayan pink salt. And the guy said that. And they're like, it turned blue on the thing. And it was not. But the man lost his job. Like all this stuff happened. So it seems like similar to that. That's a huge thing. And those those are, yeah. And that's actually, I've been hearing headlines about that. It's supposed to test for like cocaine and other drugs, but things like baking powder sometimes react to it. Like, like regular shit. Um, And yeah, and it does feel related. It's, it's this idea that, you know, the, if we can rely on this data, then we can prove guilt or innocence. But if we, this lack of ability to, or like just people really wanting to rely on data to prove it's a that problem sort of yeah it's a problem it's like there's i keep plugging stuff that has to do with the show, but there was this book called um weapons of math destruction it's a little Ooh. yellow book and it's excellent but the author is a she used to be a quant for some some stuff i don't understand i'm not great with math but she decided she wanted to be on the side of good and help people to understand like how many things are presented as objective because Mm -hmm. there's a number attached to it but Mm. how biased those things Mm -hmm. are and it's so destructive because you can always say like well the test said blah 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 it's not me but there's something built like people made the test Mm -hmm. people administer the test people decide who to test and all of those things can be skewed, like they can yeah. affect different people different ways. And so. also, when a lot of this science was created for testing for numbers, there was much more discrimination, open discrimination going on. So yeah. the reality mm-hmm. is that most of the stuff is not updated. You know, yeah. like who's really checking for that? More people yeah. are trying to figure out the moon than they are these things. Um, what's really interesting about those numbers, too. So uh, a really good example of corporate companies and labs and numbers and people really relying on numbers that are inaccurate is whatever everything that happened at Theranos with Elizabeth oh Holmes. Oh my God. I read Bad Blood. I could not put it down, but it, and there was actually really interestingly bringing it back to our discussion of breathalyzer test, which is a generic name, but also a specific, someone owns that brand name too. Um, is that a lot of the companies. So a thing at Theranos was how, you know, tightly guarded they, like they were with their, their data, which was, you know, hypothetically, oh, they were worried about people trying to steal their intellectual Garbage property. <laughs> but it was really a big cover up of how like much they were bullshitting. Yeah. And it felt really similar. I was I was reading this article and it was like all these companies that were like so tightly guarded with their breathalyzer machine, like, you know, data and coding. And it's like and they're worried about their, you know, quote, intellectual property or whatever. But it's like it's like highly secure. Like they 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 don't let they like don't let people just like analyze them um they're not they don't let private citizens buy them so they can take them apart um there was a report done by a couple of people like one state a judge ruled that they had to let um people analyze the machines because there was concerns over that the report they put out was so damning and were given out to a bunch of defense lawyers and the company like was like you all have to destroy those reports like Mm. just made them and a few and the times got their hands in a couple copies but like yeah, like really like crazy like cover up stuff under the the guise of like, oh, our, our information is so important. You can't have it. It's like it's really crazy. Yeah, it's like intellect. Like intellect is nowhere to be found. But it's like intellectual <laughs> property. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Nice. Like it's really nice. So. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, 
And with that, I think it might be time for our first musical break. You ready, Jasmine? I mean, I, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. You so. got this, girl. So do I? We'll be right back, guys. Um, this is Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. you guys like that song that's a new one it's called slow down from skip marley and the artist her anybody ever heard of skip marley no me um, either is that bob marley's <laughs> child is i mean you is the marley lot. he gotta be connected to that family somehow yeah i know, I know um voice. ziggy marley did the theme song for arthur oh nice yeah what? yeah girl oh, that's pretty cool i know it's a really good song if you really think about it too yeah i'm Memories. always looking like anytime i see something with a marley i'm like oh let me hear that yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah that's a new track but i liked it it's a nice little groovy jazz 
sort of yeah. piece. Thank you for picking that up, Teresa. No problem. All right, so we got a special segment from Matt coming up next. Yeah, Matt, who couldn't be in studio today, but thank you for putting this together. Yeah, and he's been speaking with us a couple of weeks about um, just kind of promoting other shows like ours and just kind of spreading the love. So mm-hmm. this excerpt is um, from a local podcast called Mobilize. It's an interview with Catalina Cruz, um, a dreamer from Queens, and she's currently for the New York State, running for New York State Assembly. So we're going to play this piece and we'll be right back. Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, friends, communities, and activists who've decided to stand up, resist, fight back, mobilize. It's a great podcast. A lot of wonderful interviews. Go to mobilizehere.com for more information about them or find them wherever you find podcasts. Episode 17. Catalina Cruz, a dreamer in Queens. Catalina Cruz is the first dreamer to run for office in New York State. She came to the U.S. at age nine from Columbia and grew up to become a lawyer, a public servant in both city and state government, and now a candidate for the state assembly in the 39th district in Queens. We spoke about what life is like for undocumented Americans and how she wants her candidacy to provide an example of how young women of color and immigrants can make their voices heard and fight back against the Trump administration at the state level. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Tell me about your district. What are the issues that you see that are really important to this district? We are a district of immigrants where more than 100 languages are spoken. You have folks who are permanent residents or citizens that can vote, but you also have folks that are undocumented, that might have DACA and are in danger of losing it, that might be refugees. They still have a voice that needs to be heard. They still have needs that need to be met. What is your story of of coming here as an immigrant? It sounds like your mom was a single mom when she came here. So I think my family story is almost like that poster anti-Trump narrative because he has been talking about chain migration and using that to gain brownie points, if you will, with his supporters. I was born in Colombia. I immigrated with my mother when I was nine years old, and we lived as undocumented Americans for close to 13 years, a little bit over a decade. We initially came here following my mom's partner then. That relationship didn't work, and you're correct. She was and is a single mom. When we came here, like many immigrants, we had to struggle. My mom sold empanadas and tamales at the soccer fields. She gave off flyers on 82nd Street and Roosevelt Avenue. She was a domestic worker. My ability to become a citizen happened after I married my high school sweetheart. We were together for a very long time. That Ultimately, that marriage didn't work out because we married too young. But I was then able to become a legal permanent resident, a citizen, and petition for my mom. There goes your family reunification. I was able to help my mom stay here with her four U.S. citizen children. Otherwise, she would have been deported. I would have been deported. 
And what was the reason that your family came in the first place? Was it economic? Was there uh, political stuff going on? A little bit of both. Okay. So when we lived in Colombia, my mom, she worked for a small community clinic managing a tuberculosis prevention program in a very poor neighborhood. So this was during the tail end of the Pablo Escobar era. I distinctively remember stories of how scared she was to go to work. On one New Year's, there was actually a shootout inside of the health community center where she worked. I think she was looking at the long term of how am I going to make sure that my daughter is going to be okay. She makes all these sacrifices, pretty much sells, because I remember this, everything we owned and goes and gets that visa and we come to the United States. And it seems to me like you could probably have been given some sort of protected status, but yet you weren't. In Colombia, folks from outside of the country, we've been fighting to have the American government understand that what we had was a civil war. What we had was a drug war that was killing millions of our people. And we fought for TPS, which is temporary protected status for Colombians. And it didn't happen. For 30 years, you know, our people were dying. One of my uncles was kidnapped twice. You know, he's a he's a news reporter. The American government, I don't think that they saw that there was anything to be gained from providing easier access for us to migrate. And I think the problem with that is that they're seeing it as a, what can we gain from it? Rather than a humanitarian viewpoint of how do we help these other group of humans that need us. Can you talk about the experience of being undocumented for people who really don't know anything about that? in a way that explains, you know, how difficult it is on a day-to-day basis. For undocumented folks, it's taxation without representation because we are taxed. My mom paid taxes every year, but we don't get that money back. My mom is not going to be able to access that part that she contributed while she was undocumented, when she retires. And there's thousands, if not millions, of undocumented Americans, because these are Americans for all intents and purposes, just they don't have that little paper, who have lived here, who have contributed millions of dollars into the uh, social security system, yet they can't access it when they're going to retire. For me, it was my ability to access in-state tuition when I was then forced to work full-time. We're talking 30, 40 hours, sometimes more a week, while going to school full-time. It's also, as a child, my mom would go to work and I'd go into what now has been diagnosed by my friends as the Hispanic panic because I'd go into literal panic modes if she was late because all I could think about was immigration picked her up. I'm never going to see my mother again. That was just a short portion of an interview on the podcast Mobilize. Go check it out wherever podcasts are found. They're great friends and have great resources for activists to inspire and also inform. So thank you so much, Matt, for that lovely story. Um, and just a piece of the local podcast Mobilize. Um, we love highlighting local, lo- more local stories and storytellers. So we're going to take another musical break and we'll get right back into some world, mo- world news, including tampons in Germany, South Korea politics. This is Objection to the Rule Live on Radio Free Brooklyn. When I wanna be all alone, it's just one of them days. 
That was Don't Take It Personal by Monica. Uh, just one of them days. We were just talking about how when that song came out, everybody thought she was like on her period or something. Did anybody else think that? Every time someone's having a bad day and they're a woman, <laughs> it's always like, oh, she's on her period. Right? And she actually said in an interview recently that that song wasn't even about that. Uh, she was actually too young for it, but we thought it was relevant for this Very next good world song. news story. Yeah. It's always so fun. All right. So tampons will no longer be taxed as luxury items um, in Germany. First of all, it is not a luxury to use a tampon. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Um, But anyway, I got this story. um, You may have heard it. This is from CNN.com. Equal rights campaigners Nana Josephine Roloff and Jasmine Coltra have recently made a major victory for the pink tax. And before I did this research, mm-hmm. I wasn't quite sure what pink tax was. Are we all clear on what that is? I am, but do you want to shoot out a refresher? Yeah. So basically, the pink tax is the tax for being a woman, right? It's everything that comes with us, not just for our menstrual cycles, but the other side of the pink tax is how packaging for ladies' products is actually more expensive than the same exact thing for men. So, mm-hmm. and then that is opposed to the gender pay gap that we yeah. all experience. Yeah. So, and so it's stuff like razors yep. and things like razors, that. Yeah. shampoo, shaving creams. anything that is packaged in pink does it, not have it's to about be gendered, a dollar more. Is, yeah. Yeah. Than the same item for a male. So this is why this is really important information because we're all paying this shit. <laughs> okay. So, um, so these two activists, they had an online petition to lower the tampon tax and it was presented to the German parliament this week. It had over 200,000 signatures. On Thursday, there was a landmark vote by the government to reduce the sales tax on sanitary products like tampons and pads next year. So from January 1st in 2020, the amount of tax on sanitary items in Germany will be cut from 19% to 7%. Can you believe that? That's like more than half. Um, So it's difficult to really put a price on how much sanitary products will cost a woman over over her lifetime. One report from London City Hall last year estimated that a lifetime worth of disposable menstrual products costs women about $3,000. And I think that's on the low end because that doesn't take into the account um, other associated costs like pain relief, replacement Mm. underwear, sick days from work. I know I've had to take off of work um, at a couple of times in my life because the pain was just too much and you're just not productive, Mm -hmm. you know, when you go to, to work under those conditions. So the tax has been considered a systematic discrimination against women for a really long time. And the campaign has had overwhelmingly positive support from all sides, including men. It also was the target of abuse through really bad, tasteless comments online and on social media. Hmm. Isn't that awful? Awful. And yet not surprising. Not at all. I mean, some of the commentary that I said was just like, it was awful. It would be like, well, you, you can take those 
things out of your body and you will have less of a tax to pay. Um, yeah, it, it was pretty extreme. And then there was women responding like, I did that and I still got issues. Uh-huh. Like, you know, um, but it's really sad to think that something like this, you know, we can't control this. So um, it's obvious, uh, obviously a huge discrimination issue that's been going on a long time. Uh, while Germany has one of the higher tampon tax in the EU, the top spot is in Hungary, where women fork out 27% tax on hygiene products. Um, and that's Hungary, and that's followed by Denmark, Croatia, and Sweden, which has a 25% tax. Um, this is awful. I mean, I, I'm like jumping out of my seat just mm-hmm. thinking about what yeah. that means, you know. Uh, globally, just a handful of countries have zero tax added to sanitary products, and those countries are Canada, India, Kenya, and several U.S. states. But not the U.S. nationally. Not nationally. It's I a regional what thing. here in New York. Uh, well, um, later, <laughs> I'm getting to that. Cause, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. You just BB to the punch. We do have some <laughs> state representation in New York that's doing something yeah. about that. Um, but just to conclude this part of the report, um, Nana Josephine Roloff and the other activists, um, their part, they say that the tampon tax is part of a bigger picture of inequality around the world. Um, in this report, they say it shows that misogyny is still very prevalent in our society today. Their vision for the future of this campaign would include free menstrual items in all public facilities like schools, hospitals, government offices and public toilets, Um, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, you guys know I work in a college. I definitely keep this in my office for students. Um, And it's something that I purchase out of my pocket. It's not like we have a fund for that. I just would hate for students to miss class. This is a health science program. Um, But something so simple as this, they don't have this stocked in academic offices or anything like that. So what if an emergency happens? A student's forced to leave school or something like that. That's wild. And there's also, you know, like I know um, a lot of this has to do with misogyny. We're talking a lot about women, but, you know, not everyone that menstruates is a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we Um, actually did a story on that a couple weeks ago. Yeah, good point, Jasmine. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, no problem. And there's also, you know, what about people that are incarcerated? Like, Mm -hmm. how are they treated? What do they have access to? And it's 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 one of those things, like, people don't think of it. Like, I remember... Hi, Miss Brown Andrews, like my first health teacher. Like she uh she always had like a closet full of stuff and girls could go, but it wasn't available in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I used to teach I a girl came up a student came up to me like, I got my period. Yeah. I don't and she didn't have any friends and I didn't Aww. have something in my bath. So I had I, it was like mission impossible. Like I went to the cafeteria and one of the ladies was like, Here you go, I got something. Yeah. Like and that's ridiculous. And yeah. we're made you know? to feel like it's a problem. Or like yeah. it's emba- or something to be embarrassed about. Yeah. It's right. really you know, and over the course of a lifetime that's damaging and it is yeah. unfair. It's a real obstacle. There's a big argument that like, you know, if we 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 should treat tampons and products like that, like toilet paper, right? It's a yeah. natural body thing that happens to your body. You need it. It's a health issue. Exactly. Um, we give it, we we supply it for free in bathrooms. No questions asked. Please, no questions asked. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's it's just if men menstruated, it wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, I mean, it's that all. along with the other things that the pink tax affects, you know, you would think that in 2020 is mm-hmm. something that is like, are we still dealing with this shit? Like, it's not like it's going to stop. It's not like there's anything that we can do about it. Do you think there's going to be, it's going to be a major issue in the election, Teresa? Well, in my research, I haven't seen any of the current uh, presidential candidates speaking on it at all. Um, We do see a lot of talk about equal pay for women and things of that nature. But this specific text, um, I haven't seen anything from our presidential candidates. However, um, there is a congresswoman, 
Congresswoman Jackie Spears. She's of California. I believe she's in the San Francisco area. And Congressman Tom Reed, who is a Republican from New York. Hmm. They reintroduced something called the Pink Tax Repeal Act. Um, it's a bipartisan bill and it has, currently has 50 co-sponsors. The act will, engender, will end gender-based discrimination in the pricing of goods and services by allowing the Federal Tax Commission to enforce violation. It also gives state attorney general the authority to take civil action on behalf of consumers wronged by discriminatory practices. So mm. um, Congress, Congresswoman, I'm sorry, Representative Spear, she has um, on her actual website page um, just some commentary about this this legislation. She says the pink tax is not a one-time injustice. It's an insidious form of institutionalized discrimination that affects women across this country from the cradle to the grave. Um, it's really unfortunate to think that Women pay approximately $1,500 extra a year in the pink tax. Wow. Just think about what you could do with that money. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's just the pink tax itself. Now, this additional, um, you know, coverage that we need for ourselves over the course of a lifetime can cost women up to $400,000. And for women of color, it's in the millions, the amount of money that we pay extra just to be alive. Um, it's a really interesting concept, and I definitely think it's something if, if you are in a position where you can pose these questions um, in this coming election, I think it's something that deserves some, you know, definitely some recognition, especially with all these women running for presidential campaign. Where are they at, though? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen anything. Have mm-hmm. you guys? I haven't. I haven't. Uh, and I will say that I think running as a woman it's difficult to run on specifically feminine issues because mm-hmm. you're fighting against a ton of people who don't think that women should run at all or don't would never vote for a woman. So it's tricky. It's is, definitely tricky. Is it one of those things you got to get in first? Maybe. And then make I don't know. I don't know. I think it's also something um, you use the word like insi- insi- like insidious, insidious, mm-hmm. like how, however you say it. You know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where it's like the water that you're swimming in because from the time you start, like one starts to menstruate, like you take it for granted that you have to pay for it. And sometimes it takes a lot for someone to realize like, wait a minute, I'm being taken advantage or this isn't fair. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Yeah. So I think a lot of people aren't quite at that point where they even recognize it Mm -hmm. as something that's hurting them economically and also in other ways. Um, It's just what you're used to. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I think we should we should move on to one more world story. But I will say I used to do some volunteer work in the sphere. And if you haven't checked out reusable products, um, they're not scary and they're not gross. They're they're better for your wallet. In that case, they're better for the environment. They're um, vastly better for your body in a lot of different ways if you look into it a little bit and they're not scary. So. Right. right, and also like let's not forget people that are homeless that menstruate. Yep. You know, that's yeah. something that people might not think of, but they still yeah. need those things. So and a reusable product will go a lot farther. Right, um, right. Yeah. So I think we're we're running low on time. So I'm going to speed ahead. And Sarah did um, some research on uh, a South Korean story that okay. we're going to do real fast, and then maybe some a little good news, Teresa. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. So the conservative party in South Korea is being called to rally against Democratic President Moon Jae-in by Presbyterian Reverend Jun Kwang-hoon. Large crowds have come out to Jun's rallies, spurred by his effective speeches and calls for the president to step down. Jun is chief of the Christian Council of Korea and has accused Moon of being a spy for North Korea and of moving South Korea toward communism. Jun's campaign plays to similar audiences that Trump speaks to. 
people encouraged by nationalism and, quote, alt-news sources that stoke fear. In fact, many supporters at his rallies carry signs in support of President Trump and his policies. Wow. Wow. Um, Much of the campaign also heavily supports the U.S., uh, calling any country not aligned with the U.S., quote, the devil. Uh, Most of Jun's supporters are part of the older generation, and President Moon is not likely to resign over false claims from an overly religious campaign. But a sense of growing fear and resentment is changing the political climate in South Korea, and Mr. Jun is certainly contributing to these feelings. So Sarah uh, noted that she found it most interesting the that the remarks he has been alleged to make uh, sound a lot like a certain man we know sitting in office today. Uh, from the New York Times, he once said South Korea should boost its birth rates, one of the world's lowest, by punishing families that produce fewer than five children. He also said that South Korea should Christianize itself by incarcerating all Buddhist monks on an island. He once remarked that he was so trusted in his church that female members would take their panties off before him if he told them to. Oh my gosh. Awesome. Good stuff, guys. Um, yeah. I mean, hatred spreads fast, don't it? It does. Um, it's like whack-a-mole. Like you have these things popping up all over the world. Yeah. Just yeah. getting stronger by the day. Things like that come in waves. You know, World War II was a wave of nationalism. Yeah. We're in this populist, nationalist sort of weird space now. It's kind of scary sometimes. I think we don't even realize how far our reach is, you know? Like historically, yeah. the U.S. reaches way more uh, people than a lot of other countries just by sheer, like, the way the laws work. This is showing right now how much we have influence in the world and how our news is just uh, mm-hmm. spread and, and consumed, you know, to a point that it's just coming back right back out at us, you know? It is. It is. And uh, the good news is that we don't have time to talk about this bad news more because <laughs> Teresa is going to share some more good news with us. All right. Well, as you guys know, tomorrow's Veterans Day. So yeah. shout out to all of our service women Woo-hoo. and men who have uh, served this country in uh, tons of capacities. Uh, if you know any, uh, just say thank you and give them a hug. So this good news story is also a world news story comes up out of Canada. I'm not sure if it's fully good news because the reality is that these homes are really tiny. But you know what? We're going to shed some light on it anyway. So there's an organization. It's called Homes for Heroes. Um, they have a village that's in Calgary, which is in Canada. And it's the nation's first housing complex built exclusively for homeless veterans. The villages has up to 15 houses, all of which are equipped with everything from cable and Internet to fully functioning kitchen and outdoor decks. The complex has also been equipped with additional on-site resources such as mental health support, counseling, career training, mentoring, case management, and even a community garden. So this is pretty nice um, that Canada is taking a stance to help out some homeless veterans. While this is a small um, group of people that it will service the idea that we are supplying it or they are supplying this for are their service members who have maybe fallen on bad times shows that we they are not forgotten so salute to all of you and uh, good job Canada hopefully you can influence the rest of the world mm-hmm. the Homes for Heroes Foundation already has additional land agreements in more villages um, including Edmonton, Ed- Edmonton mm-hmm. and Ontario Canada so Awesome. Shout out to you guys. Thanks, Teresa. And That's girls. awesome. Yeah. And everybody in the world. And yeah. People yeah. non conforming, which isn't very common in the military, but yeah. On cool. another day, another story, <laughs> yep. right? Yep, yep. Can I just give a shout out to all of our listeners? I just want to say thank you to all to you all. We all got some uh really good 
good information recently that our show is charting, that yeah. people are listening. We're climbing Yay. the charts. So we just want to say thank you for your support. Uh, definitely your consideration for the things that we talk about. We really do appreciate all the yes. love. Yeah. We would like to thank our fans. <laughs> right? Hi, Matt and Sean. I know you're listening. Aww. I didn't shout you out before. Hi. Hi. And all of our family members and church members and My- people. My mom and or maybe my grandpa. Grandma, hi. <laughs> and everybody that likes our post on social media, yeah. thank you so much for your support. Objection to the rule. And uh, we have a quick on-air read that Jasmine will be so kind to share. Is this right here on yeah. the show paper? Yeah. All right. Um, verbatim read. <laughs> I don't if think you, you're supposed to read that part. <laughs> well, I did. You can't. So, if you'd like to listen to RFB or Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Cool. Thanks, All right, Jasmine. so that's it for this week. Jasmine, good job Yay, running the board. The Yay, thank you. Yay. We're, yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Objections to the Rule. Yeah, on Radio Free Brooklyn. You can catch all our previously aired shows on the RadioFreeBrooklyn.org website or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, yeah. as well as an iTunes podcast. Yeah, we just uh, updated our podcast thing, so if that's a better way for you to listen, you Please can do. find some old ones there, too. Uh, we're going to go out with a song, Teresa. Yes, what last song but not it? least, this is American Woman by Lenny Kravitz. We will see you next Sunday. Great choice, Teresa. Bye. Bye. Bye.